postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising a white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it's Pastor Marcus here and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church Podcast. Man, it's uh, it's been it's been a while since my last episode. In fact, uh, I think it's been probably almost six weeks. I had a big break uh, and I won't go into all of that because I did publish a blog post last week. It, it didn't make it into the podcast, but I did publish a blog post um, with some updates and news now that I'm back from holiday. So if you want to check all that out and get caught up on the latest stuff with the Story Church Project in 2020, just make sure you head to thestorychurchproject.com and check out that blog post. It's super duper short and just some updates. But um, yes, I'm back from holiday and I'm super stoked because I actually get to finish the Cringeology series that we have been working on toward the end of last year and then big break and here's the, the final episode. Um, and I want to apologize to those of you who were like, oh man, you know, you left us hanging, bro, because that's like, you know, part seven Eurocentrism. That's the one we've all been waiting for. <laughs> um, so hopefully the long wait will have been worth it. I hope that what I share today is actually something that is meaningful and redemptive um, for you, wherever you are in your church ministry, whatever it is. Um, so with that said, it's awesome to be back. And it's awesome to finalize this super fun series which what with what is arguably the most tricky topic of the entire bunch. And that, like I said, uh, already is Eurocentrism. Uh, now, before I go into the episode, I want to take a moment to give a shout out to The Haystack. Now, if you guys don't know The Haystack, they are one of the sponsors of the Story Church Project. And uh, I want to invite you to check them out, right? They are the voice of millennials in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and they focus on life, culture, and theology. So if you want some really good content, some really cool stuff, particularly their their like video series, absolutely amazing, um, check out the haystack and there's actually one particular series that you would probably really enjoy watching in conjunction with this final part of cringeology and that is their series their docu-series the wound um with uh, with andrew ashley so make sure you you give that one a go if you want to have a little bit dig a little bit deeper into some of the issues that i'm going to talk about today um it's a really really good doco that goes over those issues in really, really redemptive way, which is really what it's all about. And I really hope that in today's post, it's this that's what you get, all right? Because I don't want to tackle this issue um, from the perspective of us versus them or, you know, um, identity politics and all this division and, and vitriol. Like, that's not my angle at all. And I'll say that a few times because I want to make sure that that's really, really, really clear. Um, now, virtually every part of the Cringology series has been controversial, all right? And this is because the entire series is premised on the idea that Adventist mission is severely limited by bad and simultaneously foreign uh, theology. And that's what I refer to as Cringology. So through this series, 
I've taken the time to discuss how cringeology kills Adventist mission. And the bottom line is this, guys, like you can do all the strategizing, vision casting, mission reframing, outreach training that you want. Until you uproot the cringeology in your church, it's never going to fulfill its true missional potential. Now, of course, don't try and be like a perfectionist about that. There's always going to be a bit of cringeology floating around. I think it keeps us on our toes. Um, so don't think, oh, there's a little bit of it left and, you know, we can't fulfill our mission or potential. This isn't about some standard, elusive standard of perfection, okay? Um, it's just do your best to foster a healthy theological culture in your church. Um, that's a journey that I'm on. And, you know, without that healthy theological culture, everything else sort of doesn't get that far. And that's the real point. So in today's episode, I want to tackle the final item in my list of cringeological beliefs. Eurocentrism, which for our context, I am defining as, let's prepare ourselves here, the belief that holiness is white. Now, in case you're wondering if you misheard me, I'm going to repeat that. I'm defining Eurocentrism for our context as the belief that holiness is white. Now, I need to be super duper clear here because... Like I said earlier, our current cultural climate is so politicized that such a statement is very easy to misconstrue as being influenced by left-leaning ideology and not scripture. So I want to make this really clear from the get-go before some of you begin dropping your angry comments. (laughs) Um, I am not a political progressive. I do not agree with identity politics. I am not a fan of this white hunt culture that we see in a lot of progressive scenarios today. Um, Not to paint all progressive scenarios with one brush either. All right, so let's be careful with that too. Um, I also don't subscribe to the idea that European culture is somehow eviler than all others or that oppressed cultures are somehow endowed with a higher moral insight than European cultures. I don't believe that at all. Um, In fact, I believe that given the right amount of power and economical capacity, every people group who has ever been victimized would easily become the victimizer. In a case in point, the French Revolution. I mean, you know, come on. So overall, I'm neither an ally of the political left or the political right. And in fact, I believe that it's the collision between the two, not one or the other, but both intention that are going to give birth to the totalitarian final events that scripture foresees before Jesus returns. That's my belief. And you don't have to agree with that, but I just want to make that really clear. Um, in case, you know, you feel tempted throughout this episode to jump on uh, Facebook and uh, accuse me of being... Uh, Marxist. Um, (laughs) Now, undoubtedly, some people still will because they won't listen to this or read the blog, but there it is for what it's worth. So again, I'm not here for political arguments. Instead, I'm engaging this conversation from a purely experiential and theological angle, all right? As a Latino who was raised in a church that taught him that in order to be holy, he had to be less Latinx and more European. And as a believer in a God who calls us into a kingdom marked by humility and not supremacy. So what exactly is Eurocentrism? 
um, at least in the context that we're discussing it here today. Why is it false and how does it damage Adventist mission? Let's find out. So what is Eurocentrism? This is a massive topic and in this blog slash podcast, there is no way that I can adequately do it justice. Uh, this is man all i'm doing is just introducing it here and that even then it's like so you know so simple like this is a deep deep topic uh but let me go with the google dictionary definition so that we can at least have a starting place google dictionary defines eurocentrism as focusing on european culture or history to the exclusion of a wider view of the world end quote so basically in the church context a Eurocentric worldview places European culture as the standard for what God desires for his people. What this means is we create what counselor John Bradshaw refers to as a religious script, uh, end quote, which, quoting him again, contains the standard of holiness and righteous behavior, end quote. Now, Bradshaw goes on to describe how these, quote, standards dictate how to talk. Right? There's like this, there's a proper God voice, how to dress, walk, and behave. Uh, and if you look carefully, all right, um, by the way, the Bradshaw quote ended, I'm commenting here now. <laughs> if, if you look carefully at this script, uh, it tends to favor a European mode of being. So if a person departs from the script within the church culture, they're then considered to be worldly or sinful. Now, with this Eurocentric religious script in place, certain things tend to happen. And I'm looking at some of the symptoms here rather than getting to the absolute core, which I'll explain the core a little bit more later on. But again, there's some excellent resources that dig into this in way more detail than I can today. Um, but with this religious Eurocentric script in place, these are some of the symptoms that emerge. For example, worship is constrained to the musical traditions and styles of the European culture. Hymns are proper for worship and most permissible special items sound like classly, classic pardon, uh, Disney musicals. Uh, preachers and church members will often speak in the same prose and tone as the KJV or Ellen White's writings, often even mimicking words, even though nobody talks like that anymore. Um, it's as if the Victorian age English is somehow more sacred than its modern evolutions. In fact, a colleague of mine uh, once sat in on a debate in church where a woman argued that the old English word thy or thine should not be replaced with a modern word you or your because the older word had a, and I quote, more sacred sound. So in this context, God is also perceived as a Western authority figure, like he's perceived like as a monarch or a judge. So for example, you've probably heard people in church say that we should dress up to go to church because if we're going to see a judge or the queen, we would do the same. So this is a Eurocentric view that assumes God is relating to us the way an impartial Western judge or monarch would. And in the same trend, when we say a person should dress up to go to church, what we mean is they should wear Western European attire because this attire is somehow holier, more elevated or sanctified than the dress styles of other cultures. So historically, for example, uh, missionaries to Africa and the islands brought this idea with them. And so when locals converted and came to church to worship, they had to wear for example, the men, uh, Western suits and ties. And this idea remains to this day. Um, and honestly, man, like, 
I feel really bad for some of those Jamaican pastors I've seen preaching in a sweat-drenched suit in the middle of summer, right? But many of them have been so indoctrinated to believe that it is an offense to God to not dress that way, that they will endure the irrationality of impracticality in order to adhere to the false belief that a Western suit and tie is the only way to enter into the presence of a holy God. Now, when I was growing up, I also noticed Adventists uh, only sang hymns despite my church being 100% Latinx. Uh, but other churches worshipped with traditional Latinx music like salsa or merengue, right? Now, I remember one time I asked my mother, why don't we worship with the music of our culture uh, like some other churches do? And her reply was really simple. She said, and I quote, when you receive Jesus, you abandon your culture for his, end quote. And I was really satisfied with that answer until I moved to Hawaii when I was 18 years old. And when I got there, I noticed I saw these Hawaiians going to church in traditional Hawaiian attire, right? So some of the men in traditional Polynesian lavalalas, which is, you know, the, the, the long black, what we would call a, a skirt in English, uh, kukui nutlays, necklaces made of nuts, right? Um, short sleeve shirts, others in flower shirts, shorts and sandals. And they were coming to church like this on Sabbath morning, right? Wearing Hawaiian lays, the, the flower necklace, all while worshiping with ukuleles and Hawaiian conga drums. And during special occasions, even the hula dance, which, you know, some Westerners found a bit uncomfortable, uh, was used in worship. And I started to wonder why these people of deep spiritual commitment, I got to tell you, man, these Hawaiians that love Jesus, man, this spiritual commitment is deep. And, but I started to wonder why these people of deep spiritual commitment did not worship the way I did growing up. I mean, they had accepted Jesus, that much was clear. So why hadn't they abandoned their culture for his. So over the years, as I continued to study and educate myself on issues of culture and history, I came to this startling discovery that was also really obvious, and, and it's this, that not once in all of scripture does an angel come to earth to tell humanity what his culture, his music, or his dress style is. So apart from principles that could be applied in many different ways, the Bible never set any kind of standard on cultural expression. And as I dug deeper, I started to notice an odd trend that his culture, that is his music, his dress, his expression, was interestingly always white. Now, how come? So the more I thought about this, I kind of got more confused, right? There's all these things that I didn't understand. And the clearest one was that Jesus never told us how to dress. He dressed like a Jew. He never told us how to sing. He sang like a Jew. And he never told us how to express ourselves. He expressed himself as a Jew. If anything, his culture was ancient first century Jewish culture. And I didn't see anyone around me trying to mimic that. So instead, what I saw was the dress, music, hair, speech, and temperaments of Europe's high culture seemed to be the thing people were referring to whenever they appealed to his culture. And of course, there's all these famous depictions as well of Jesus as this Anglo-English Englishman, right? These pictures, these paintings of Jesus that have served to bolster this idea. Um, and the same can be said of the, the majority of Adventist art through the 1950s. All, all the angels are, you know, they're white and they're blonde and they're blue-eyed. And I, I still remember the first time I saw an angel that looked Middle Eastern, I thought to myself, man, that's an ugly angel. Uh, angels wouldn't possibly look like this, right? I mean, they're meant to be beautiful, which was code word for, you guessed it, white. 
Now, I remember as well, in the same vein, I, I once sent my father a picture some research uh, had put together of what Jesus most likely looked like based on the standard features of first century Jewish men. And my father emailed back, and this is what he said in his email when he replied. He looks more like Judas than Jesus. <laughs> in short, because he didn't look white, but looked like an average Jew of the time and region. So, you know, darkish skin, dark hair, brown eyes. Then he reflected what my dad's mind associated with evil, Judas, instead of what his mind associated with holy. So with this context in play, I spent years living with the subconscious desire to be more white because I believed the more white I was, the holier I was. So for example, I had to wear polo shirts and khaki pants because that's what holy Adventists do. And mind you, I'm urban, right? I'm an urban Latino, so we don't wear polo shirts and khaki pants. But I had to abandon my urbanism and exchange it for white preppy culture because that's what holy people do this this is what's going on in my head right um i had to abandon my worldly urban haircuts in in favor of the holier suburban clean cut um i had to unlearn the urban slang that i grew up with and replace it with a more sacred educated vernacular and prose in my head when i imagined a truly holy person i, I pictured a modest non-ambitious woman dressed in victorian attire and men who all looked like Fred Rogers, right? I never once thought that holiness could come with dreadlocks and kanzus, drums and didgeridoos, or swagger and slang. My entire vision of holiness was purely middle-class suburban white culture from the 1950s and before. And even when I pictured colored people in heaven, they were always compliant with Eurocentric beauty standards. So for example, and you see this in, in a lots of paintings of heaven as well, um, where black women always have a bouffant haircut. It's like, why? You know? <laughs> um, now, if you actually go to my blog post where, where I shared a blog on this, um, I've shared some paintings and pictures on there where, you know, the angels and heaven, and it's all very, very, very Eurocentric. And you can see some of that there. And, and if you pay special attention and you look for the, like, the African people in the paintings, you'll notice that apart from their skin color being dark, everything else about them is very, very white. Uh, like, look, I suppose I could go on and on, but I think you get what I mean by Eurocentrism now. So the next question is, why is this false? Now, the history of white supremacy and Eurocentric preeminence is big and long and painful, but it's not entirely unique. And I want to make this clear, right? All cultures and people groups exhibit the impulse of self and propagate control, tyranny and injustice at different levels. All right, so it's not like Euro European culture is somehow unique in this regard, right? The reason why Eurocentrism is highlighting or why I'm highlighting it is it's not to place a hypocritical burden on one culture above others. It's simply because this one mode of thought is preeminent in our church at this time. Not everywhere, but in enough places. So in order to highlight the need for this cultural freedom of expression within the church rather than cultural elitism or demonization, uh, we need to call the item by its name and repent of it. Now, to understand why this ideology is false, one only need look at the values that undergird white supremacy or white prominence. Uh, a perfect example, um, this is probably a little bit of a dramatic example, but it serves to make the point really well, is um, Hitler's Reich Music Hammer. 
the German Ministry of Music, which promoted German-composed classical music like Beethoven and Bach, while labeling music that was of African origin, that is tribal, or African-influenced, that is American jazz or blues, as debased or degenerate music belonging to, and I quote, a degenerate people. So the Germans pejoratively referred to this kind of music as, and I quote, negger music, and they banned it in their society. For them, the only music, or rather only the music composed by Aryan peoples was pure, ennobled, and elevated because the Aryan or white race was a pure and noble race. And sadly, the same ideas tend to undergird much of our worship debates to this day, which always aims to present African-influenced music as debased and the more white music as noble. Now, these ideas were also present in America throughout the Jim Crow era. Black became associated with debased, unintelligent crime and sexual perversion. Uh, black people were banned from attending schools, which barred them from, among many things, receiving a musical education. And as a result, they developed their own modes of music in order to have a voice and protest the injustices they faced. And this music, in turn, came to be seen by the Eurocentric culture as either a reflection of the black degeneracy that they believed in or as a pathway toward it. So, for example, if the youth listen to black music styles, they will be corrupted. Right? That's sort of thing. So great strides were taken to limit the influence of black culture, particularly in music styles, from entering the cultural consciousness, which was dominated mostly by Eurocentric value structures. And the church became one of the final bulwarks in this fight. Now, if we go even further back, we'll find that the transatlantic slave trade wasn't merely empire doing what empire does. Rather, what we find is that the church itself developed theological concepts to justify and at times require the violent subjugation of tribal peoples. The pervasive narrative was that in order to save the tribal peoples, which they refer to as savages, from themselves, they needed to be enslaved. So in so doing, the gospel could be spread to them and they could in turn become civilized, which is just a code word for white. Um, the history of eugenics also came into play with the suggestion that some races of men were more human than others or more evolved. And of course, it was always the tribal peoples who were kind of at the bottom of the barrel. Um, and through all these historical movements, one would always find a strong biblical case being made to defend these ideas. And even today, uh, even though I don't have time to go into details, um, there are those who try and appropriate the Bible and even Ellen White to push the idea that whiteness or the, the cultural expressions of Eurocentric culture is holiness, right? And they never use those words, of course, but the pieces of the puzzle are there. Now, of course, look, an entire encyclopedia could be filled with the stories and worldviews that lead to these atrocities. I'm, I'm just mentioning a few in order to make this case. And, and this is really my bottom line. None of this is in any way compatible with the kingdom of God. None of it. Now, I'm not saying, and this is another clarification. I hate doing all these clarifications, but there's such a polarized conversation that you kind of have to so that you don't waste your time arguing with people who think you're saying one thing when you're not, right? So let me make this clear. I'm not saying that tribal slash non-white cultures are somehow the possessors of some higher morality that Anglo cultures don't have, 
okay? Um, tribal cultures did despicable things as well, all right? You can think of scalping, genital mutilation, human sacrifice are among the most extreme. But outside of this, many of these cultures also engaged in kidnapping, slavery, conquest, rape, genocide, etc. Um, and in addition, many of the traditions and expressions they developed are contrary to the gospel as well. So I'm in no way suggesting that anything and everything that comes from any culture is 100% transferable to the Christian faith. Under the lens of the gospel, I believe all cultures have changes to make because all cultures are fallen. Uh, but the difference is that under the gospel, a culture can self-apply the changes it needs through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which is a whole lot different from having another culture with bigger guns come along and delete your identity in order to clone its own supremacist ideology onto you. So in the end, Eurocentrism is false because it places one fallen culture with more power over another and then employs the methods of the flesh, control, coercion, tyranny, violence, manipulation, etc. to erase their identity. And if the gospel shows us anything, it's this. God never transforms by force. Man, I could say so much more, so much more, but I want to move on to the last question. How does this kill Adventist mission? Now, again, I like, I don't think identifying why Eurocentrism is false is a hard thing. I mean, it's pretty self-evident where the problem lies. If Latinx became the most powerful people on earth and then went around forcing everyone to wear guayaberas to church and sing only Hibaro worship music under the pretense that this is what makes God happy, then non-Latinx peoples would have the right to raise their voice and say, hey, hold on a second here. But the main question, the reason why we're even discussing this is how does Eurocentrism, Eurocentrism I'm sorry, I Got tongue-tied there. How does it kill Adventist mission? So here are five major, major ways that I've seen, all right? Number one, evangelism becomes complicated. When you preach the pure, unadulterated word of God, it's simple, life-changing, and beautiful. But when you add cultural preferences to that, you take that simple message and overcomplicate it with rules God himself never cared to mention. As I love how Roger Hernandez put this in a sermon I heard of his ages ago. There are 10 commandments, not 10,000. But when your evangelism is a combination of the gospel plus Eurocentric value structures, you end up preaching not just the good news of Jesus, but the social conventions of your own particular cultural heritage. So Adventism then becomes complex because now, rather than the good news of Jesus. Love God, love your neighbor, right? It's also wear this, don't listen to that. Make sure you only worship this way and avoid looking like that. And if you got this hair, you got to cut it. And if you wear that, you got to change it. You know, it's like all these rules come into play that aren't even there in scripture. And again, the interesting thing is that they always tend to favor white culture. Now, the tragedy here is that while some people can squeeze themselves into that narrow man-made box, most people cannot. And it's so complicated, it ends up excluding the people who can't fit the template or script we've created for them. And the other tragedy emerges as culture evolves as well. And let's make this really clear. When I'm talking about Eurocentric value structures, I'm not even talking about modern Eurocentric value structures. I'm talking about old, you know, like 1950s and before. Because in our current cultural climate, even white culture is no longer defined by one mode of being or expression. It's very fragmented and diverse. 
But many churches continue to push the culture expression of a bygone Anglo-American generation and in turn exclude emerging generations as well. Number two, evangelism causes irreversible damage. When people begin to wake up to the injustice of forcing European value structures onto their ancestors, they begin to reject Christianity altogether. In fact, in case you've ever heard of the theory that Christianity is a white man's invention to subjugate weaker nations and control them, that, that theory isn't, you know, and it's complex, of course, it's the, I don't want to like oversimplify this, but isn't necessarily born out of a rebellion to God. It's a reaction to centuries of cultural deletion and self-loathing left behind by the idea that holiness is white. Now, such people end up being a thousand times harder to reach in the long run because they come to associate Jesus with the coercion and injustice of Western empire. And in some instances, they return to the religions and practices of their forefathers as a way to decolonize and self-liberate from the ideological shackles of Eurocentrism. And trying to get them to consider Christ again becomes a near impossible task. Number three, the oppressed often become worse than the oppressors. Now, I'm not gonna lie, guys. The worst people I have ever interacted with when it comes to these issues are not white people. They're Latinx. <laughs> I'm telling you, if you go to a Latinx church and challenge the dress and music styles, which are overwhelmingly Anglo, you might not live to tell the tale. Um, I've been to quite a few European dominant churches and, and found that apart from a few ultra conservative folks, most people are fairly tolerant of the fact that other cultures worship differently. They're not too fussed by that. But you find yourself in a church of non-Euro culture that has been colonized and you will find a culture that seems to be way more oppressive than the people who oppress them. Now, don't ask me to explain why, because I have no idea. Maybe a sociologist can be of more help. But this culture does result in one repeated problem. It scares its youth away. Today, especially, young people are asking more questions about their heritage and are more aware of the fact that holiness is not equivalent to whiteness. But if they try and bring this up in their churches or bring in more diversity and cultural inclusivity, leaders accuse them of bringing the world into the church, because of course, anything that's not European is worldly, and oppose them at every turn often resorting to verbal abuse and shaming in order to push back. And in my experience, this always results in a massive youth exodus that leaves the church old and dying. It's pretty sad. Number four, the message of scripture, pardon, is westernized. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard this. Um, I grew up hearing this all the time. The idea, right, when going through the book of Revelation, that America in prophecy is a lamb that will someday speak as a dragon. Now, I've heard this many times growing up, and then one day as I was reading Revelation, I noticed the text doesn't force this before and after view. Instead, it's just as easy to understand the text saying that America has always been both a lamb and a dragon. So rather than a transition from one to another, the duality is simultaneous. But why does this matter? It matters because only a privileged culture would say that America was ever a lamb that someday becomes a dragon. Ask the non-privileged in our society if America has ever been a lamb. Ask the Native Americans, ask the slave victims of and the slaves and the victims of Jim Crow, ask the migrants, and they will say no. It's been more like a dragon the entire time. So this is another example, besides the ones I've already mentioned, where the message of scripture tends to get Americanized or Westernized and presented from the perspective of Anglo culture. And the result of such a view is we miss the opportunity to solidify in our churches the need for pursuing humanitarian justice for those who are undermined by the same structure that we benefit from. 
Number five, and this is the last one, we erect a wall between people and Jesus. Now, I spoke to an African brother recently who told me half of the resources designed at the GC for evangelism and outreach are so Americanized. <laughs> they are useless where he lives. And I've seen the same thing with evangelism slides where whenever a Christian, quote unquote, is shown, they always look like airbrushed Anglos. And in the rare occasion that they're black, they always look like Carlton from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Um, but... There, these are merely symptoms of the real problem, and that is that for most Adventists, the entire universe revolves around Anglo culture. Now, this is my final clarification, okay? You cannot castigate people for perceiving reality according to the categories they are most familiar with, right? Asians are going to perceive things from an Asian perspective, right? Latinos are gonna, you know, uh, perceive it from that perspective, that Spanish perspective, right? And and so are Europeans. They're gonna perceive things from a European perspective. And there's nothing wrong with that. But the fact that Adventism has been heralded as the most multicultural church in the world makes it hard to excuse our Eurocentric vision of the battle between good and evil. If our entire concept of the controversy of the great controversy is solely European, our resources and even our evangelism tactics take on a form that only really works in heavily colonized areas. But when it comes to reaching people who have resisted colonization or are in the process of decolonizing, our methods just don't work. And boy, I could go into that, but we're at 32 minutes already. Um, and so it's almost as if people have to embrace Eurocentric culture first and then they can hear the gospel. So basically what we end up doing is we place a cultural wall between people and Jesus. A wall that is merely one man-made cultural expression among the many. So then what's the solution to this, right? What's the solution to this? Let me begin with what the solution is not. It's not about attacking European culture or heritage in our church. The truth is, and this is my honest perspective, and you might agree, you might not disagree. My, the truth is for me, European culture is beautiful. And it has a lot of brilliant elements that make our church an awesome community to belong to, right? Hymns are beautiful. You know, the, the, the special items that, you know, you, you, we've, we've heard all our lives. They're pretty. They're, you know, they're, they're, they, they have this beauty to them. Even the dress styles, you know, all this stuff, there's a beauty to it. There's nothing wrong with it. So this isn't about engaging in some ridiculous cancel culture or purge culture type of tirade. Instead, I believe the solution comes in three simple steps. The first is for each of us to humbly educate ourselves on the history and impact of colonialism. The second is for each of us to willingly sit at the table and ask other cultures and generations about their experiences with diversity or lack thereof in our churches. Because listening to one another and learning to appreciate one another is one of the most powerful things we can do. The third is we need to ask the Holy Spirit for guidance in how we move forward in our respective settings. Because the truth is there's no simple solution to this stuff because this stuff is complicated. Um, and this post can easily become an entire book on its own, right? But if we aim to go on a journey with redemptive, loving hearts, we will begin to pave the way for a more diverse, inclusive, and humble church. And that, I believe, is what will truly make us holy. All right, guys. I think that's the longest cringeology episode of all time. Um, <laughs> we're, we're past half an hour here. 
Um, but here's the thing. This this is the end of cringeology. This is the conclusion of the cringeology series. Uh, we, we've talked about the seven false beliefs that kill Adventism's missional capacity. From the slough of fundamentalism, verbal dictation, down to the injustice of Eurocentrism, each of these seven beliefs are false, damaging, and worst of all, they perpetuate skewed pictures of God. And for a people who've been called to reveal the truth about God's heart, it's not enough to simply strategize for mission. To the contrary, I believe we need to uproot all unhealthy and toxic beliefs from among us. We have to clear the Achans from the camp. And then our strategies will give us success because we'll have the truth in our midst and we can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is going to be with us. So with that said, I hope you've been challenged and blessed to be rooted in the truth that sets us free from the lies that damage our ability to reach the world. And even if you disagree at every step of the way with the Cringology series, um, I'm welcome, right? I want to make that really clear. I, I welcome disagreements. Um, I don't have time to get into, you know, long, drawn-out debates because I do pastor three churches. But I welcome a few comments here and there, some disagreements. We can, you know, look at things from different perspectives. That's totally cool. Um, I think the ability to have those conversations and express different ideas is how we all grow. But I really hope that even if you disagree, that you take the time to at least consider the heart where these concepts come from and that... You will allow that to inspire you to dig deeper in not only into God's word, but into your relationship with the people around you who also see the world differently to you. Now, if you want to dig deeper into what a healthy missional Adventism looks like, you can always do a bit more reading in the ebooks in my bookstore. Check those out, guys. They are not expensive and um, they really help. Uh, keep the Story Church project going and upgrading and things like that. So check them out in the bookstore, Story Church. Uh, Story Church. Oh, pardon me. I totally mispronounced church there. Thestorychurchproject.com slash store and the number one. And you can find them there. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap up now and I will catch you in a few weeks. I've got a really awesome interview that you're absolutely going to love with Matthew J. Corpman, the author of a book titled saying no to God. And you're absolutely going to love that interview. Um, it's brilliant, powerful. It's kind of long. It's like an hour and a half. So get ready. All right. <laughs> um, but it's going to blow your mind. Okay, guys, I will catch you then. Take care and God bless. Mm -hmm.